Oh, hi everyone. As an extra heads up, this episode involves discussion about emotional abuse and power imbalances. We do our best to hold these topics with intention and sincerity, and we hope you'll join us whenever you feel ready and able. Please visit our episode description for additional resources relating to the topics discussed in this episode. This is Terry. And this is Anne Marie. And this is Therapists After Hours. Today we will be talking to Emily, who is a 27 year old graduate researcher in science. So, leaving the conversation with Emily, I think there was a part of me that was really happy that we've had this conversation and also at the same time a heaviness sitting with me because I think what Emily has shared in her experiences is very common in a lot of different settings and not a lot of people get a chance to talk about or hear about these kinds of power imbalances and emotional abuse relationships Mm -hmm. and so while as a person I'm leaving that conversation with a heaviness because there's an extreme unfairness that people have experienced anything like what Emily has described I'm also feeling privileged that she's willing to share that story with us and with all of our listeners Um, Because my hope is that people will hear what she has shared and maybe feel less alone and more apt to speak up, seek help, have opinions, get support. Um, So heavy but like optimistic Mm -hmm. that hopefully this will reach somebody in need and do some good. I think one of um, the major pieces that makes me excited about this conversation is that Mm. it's an area that feels maybe a lot murkier to most people, Mm -hmm. where if your partner is screaming at you and Mm -hmm. belittling you, that it might be easier to say, yes, this is emotional abuse, but Mm -hmm. when it's your boss, when it's your supervisor, when Mm -hmm. it's your teacher... I don't think it's as clear to people that, yes, that is Mm -hmm. emotional abuse. Right. Um, The other thing that I really enjoyed about this conversation was it felt a lot closer to sessions. Hmm. Like our interactions. Right. The nervousness. Mm -hmm. She was like, I'm just going to come and talk and I'm not 100% sure what I'm going to talk about Mm -hmm. and so it took a little bit more of like us to engage in the conversation Mm -hmm. Um, which I think I mean if I didn't enjoy it I wouldn't be in the (laughs) career that I'm in so uh, that's also part of why I I loved the conversation so Mm -hmm. much Um, it felt like a real back and forth yeah And you could tell over the course of the conversation, Mm -hmm. she was opening up gradually. Right. And kind of wrangling with the things that she had felt ashamed about, that she had felt 
embarrassment over Mm -hmm. and then made the decision within herself and through conversation to just say things as they were Mm -hmm. which is something that happens in sessions all the time right that there's there's kind of fear and shame at the beginning of the conversation and through empathy through open conversation eventually the goal is to get to a point where you go yes this is what was happening to me and Mm -hmm. that is a natural reaction my stress um manifestations are a natural reaction to being abused day after day mm-hmm. at my workplace mm-hmm. for years mm-hmm. and yeah. so like of course I was experiencing these things something I really like that Emily highlighted is that this is not just the experience of a woman mm. yeah this is an experience of everybody Mm-hmm. no matter their gender and I think that's a really important highlight of that conversation um, I just I really 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 respected the vulnerability and the natural conversation like you said because I think listeners are going to hear this and find a piece that resonates with them. Mm -hmm. The whole point of this podcast is talking about how mental health has affected different people throughout their lives. So do you kind of want to start from the beginning? I would say that I don't think that mental health played like a huge part of my life when I was younger. Um, I never really had like anxiety as a kid, but I did have a lot of like body issues. I think looking back on it, I didn't realize they were as big of influences in my life as I think they are now. Like, I remember somebody called me like a beached whale one time when I was in like grade three or like small little things like that or like just being always a bit too chubby or like even family members calling me fat or things like that. And so I think those like really small things kind of gave me a lot of insecurity. So I had a lot of body issues when I was young, but Uh, no like anxiety or anything like that more just like insecurity how did that manifest itself like the body issues when you were younger did that change your behavior in any way I always came off I think as really shy when I was young and now people know me now and they're like there's no way you were ever shy that's not who you are And I always try to convince people I'm like no 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 I was really shy (laughs) and they can't see it so I think I'm happy that I feel like maybe I've broken out of that shell a little bit, but I used to feel very insecure. I used to feel like it was hard to make friends, that people wouldn't like me. Or I felt like, oh, if I was too chubby, no one would want to date me or like things like that, which are not true. And I see that as an adult, Mm. but I do still feel like those insecurities that happened as a kid still like haunt me a little bit today. Or I feel like whenever I feel low, if, if like when I was a bit older, I had a lot of mental health issues with my work situation. And so when those work stresses would come out, the body image stuff would just like pour back in like a flood. Like Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be bothering me, wouldn't be bothering me. But if I felt bad because Mm -hmm. I felt like I was a bad scientist at work, then I also felt really insecure about my body and it always kind of couples and would come back. That actually leads us into kind of the next chunk that I think is really interesting. Um, Knowing that academically you have 
reached kind of the pinnacle, right? Like being a, uh, a researcher and a scientist um, in academia and that that can lend itself to a whole host of abusive mm. power structures. Yeah, I think that there can be a lot of issues with academia in the way it's structured it's very like it can e you can easily like isolate and control people i think because there's not a lot of like hr or structured other managers or other people you can go to it's really like one person and they control all of these other group of people and those group of people don't really have anybody else they can go to if they have issues mm -hmm. and so i think it easily lends itself to an abusive situation if it's not an, a great person leading that group. Mm -hmm. And that was definitely the case that I fell into. I felt like it was a very abusive situation. I was there for like three and a half years, which was quite hard. And <clears throat> I think it's really after I've left and I can kind of, my eyes are open and I can see the light of like what normal is. It was crazy how in control I felt he was like I felt like he controlled every decision of my future I had to do every single thing he said or I had no future that he would take away I was in university for eight years I thought he would take away all of that work and would never kind of like give me a bad name and I would never get a job or never get hired and so I felt like he kind of controlled my life and that I had to do whatever he said even though it would make me really unhappy mm -hmm. Sorry, I just want to clarify, it's just for anyone listening, the he that you're describing, is that a supervisor? What was the relationship dynamic like with this, this person? Yeah, he was my supervisor, so he was pretty much my only contact mm. in my research group that I was in. So I didn't really have anybody else I could go to, except for like group members like within the group, mm. which mm. in the group everybody was very supportive and it was a really like almost like a family environment where we kind of like could pick each other up because everybody was suffering the same abusive behavior. Mm. So it was even in the darkest times, it was nice not to be alone, knowing that people you didn't have to explain yourself. Someone would just give you a hug because they knew how bad it was. Mm. So that was really nice. Can you set the stage for us? I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what it looked like in your day to day, the things that would, um, trigger anxiety, trigger stress, the things that, the tactics maybe that he used, just because I want people to know mm. that that's not right and that's not acceptable and that it really is abusive. This is always a huge anxiety point of mine. I always feel yeah. like when I talk about the things I did, I always have this big fear that everyone's going to be like, oh, you're such a baby. It's not bad that he did those things. And even though, like, objectively, I've told a lot of people by this point the things that he's done and everybody is mm -hmm. like, oh, my God, that's not OK. Like, he can't treat you like that. That is abusive. And like, I would even go to my friends that were kind of like a little bit douchey, like kind of like not soft around the edges. And I would be like, is this mean? And they would be like, oh my god yes that's mean even like people who are not at all sensitive thought it was mean but i i always feel like i still have this insecurity that someone's mm -hmm. going to be like oh he like 
made you have a meetings at 10 p.m. and he slammed doors in your face and he screamed at you and he said really hateful things. That's not mean. You're just too sensitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was really great with having people who are like mm-hmm. older in the group. I think that's really common for people who have experienced this form of abuse. Um, the questioning of what's valid in abuse and what's acceptable and what's not abuse and that kind of headspace you fall into is really common. I think people question it often and because someone isn't physically putting their hands on you, which would be a very quick, that's abuse and that's a non-negotiable, there's more room for our mind to play games on us and I just want you to know that I think that's a very common conversation people have with themselves and with others that it's very hard to share and be vulnerable the way that you're willing to today um, and talk about your experience and label it as abuse even though you're being vulnerable and saying i have moments where i question it and i feel insecure about it i had a friend who luckily she was a few years like higher in the group and so she started labeling it abusive and then that really kind of helped me like see how bad it was as well and it was really nice to kind of see like (laughs) these people that like I never want my friends to go through pain but it was kind of seeing like these people I respect so much seeing her and how hard she had to go through it and me thinking how brilliant and smart she is it's like okay at least these people who are amazing also find this hard so it's okay that I find it hard like everybody found it really hard. I would say there was the strategies he would go with trying to like, I really always felt like, so at some point the group was like 60 people and he would like always select a couple people from each subgroup to target. Like he wouldn't like target all these people really close at one time. Cause I feel like he didn't want like an uprising. So he kind of like distributed mm-hmm. who he was really abusing at a time. And I felt like sometimes the culture of the group could be bad too because people would so easily forget or try to pretend things didn't happen so like as a maybe as a defense mechanism so they could just like get on and keep moving through. And so I felt like people would always like pretend. And then the later we all got in our degrees, I feel like the more we just stopped giving a fuck and we're like, this is terrible. Everybody was like finding it hard. And I feel like another thing I feel like he would sometimes bait me to be emotional. Like Mm -hmm. in one meeting, he was like, I know you hate me, tell me about it. And it's Mm -hmm. kind of like, I feel like he would want me to get emotional. He would want me to engage because he wanted, I really feel like Mm -hmm. he's a sociopath. I like did a lot of reading on how to work with a sociopath, how to deal with it, like steps to take. And then the more I would read, the more I would be like, this is him emotionally baiting me because he wants to see me in pain. And I had a friend who he did the same thing with her and she didn't engage in him. And he just started amping up in that meeting where he got to a point where she was not engaging in him. And he just kind of like yelled and couldn't handle it anymore. Mm. And I, and even in like one particular meeting, this was in front of like 60 people And he said to everybody that when he would have meetings with people, they would go to their desks and cry and that that was unfair to him because it made him seem like a bad guy. Clearly there's enough people that 
have the need to go cry at their desks afterwards. Maybe that's a problem. I remember like one particular low point after we, I'd had a really bad meeting with him, but I was so busy that I just like didn't have the time to deal with those emotions. I just had so much to do. And I went to one of the bathrooms at my work. I set a 10 minute alarm to allow myself to cry for 10 minutes but I had too much time that I couldn't indulge those emotions. I really needed to get back to work. And I was like, this is not a healthy work environment. Mm -hmm. Like these aren't normal things people need to do to get through the day. And I think that since leaving, it was, I think it was crazy how much control I felt like he was, but I really at the time believed he controlled my whole future and that if I did anything, that he didn't want me to do, my work future would be ruined. I think that was the biggest issue that most people had is we were just scared he mm-hmm. would tank our careers and we could, we went to university for eight years for nothing and we'd have to start over because he would destroy our names. And would he specifically say things like that? Like, um, if you don't do X, then Y will happen? Or was it more insidious than that, more implied? I think it really depends on the case. I know some people who he did friend, he's like, you will not get a reference letter or like, you won't get this. But I do think it was more implied sometimes. Like that was an example where it was explicit, but there's a lot of implied cases. And I think it was more like, he'd also always try to like surprise you. He wouldn't like set up a meeting. He would just like see you and be like, walk with me. And then like say all these really mean things. And I feel like it really lent itself to like being difficult to record those conversations for proof of that abuse and harassment. He like, didn't like to have things on paper. And then he was like very Mm. controlling about like communication within the group. Like one of my friends had a particularly bad meeting with him and she was crying and I went to comfort her. And then he saw us talking while she was emotional. And then she was terrified and he was like clearly so mad at her. And he like made it clear, like he really Mm -hmm. got upset when people were communicating with each other. He like tried to keep people like isolated a bit, I think. And I think he was scared that we would like talk badly behind his back. Um, so he did a lot of things to try to like separate, like separate communication. And he would always be like really big on like, this stays within the group. Like this doesn't leave the group. Like don't communicate outside the group. And it was like, it felt very controlled and very calculated at times. And so then like a lot of the things he would say, like maybe he'd call you and then that's where he'd say like the really abusive things. So it would be not traceable, like, on the phone or in person. And I always found that was a hard thing, like, if I wanted to, like, gather evidence. Mm -hmm. That's okay. That's okay. So if you wanted maybe some proof to support your reality that it was really bad that it was really abusive that he kind of had ways to make it as difficult as he could for you to have that proof of what is actually going on so when you kind of say it to somebody else and you go well he's 
he like yelled at me, he screamed at me. And in that moment, it's not like you're recording. It's very mm-hmm. hard to remember when you're um, in a heightened state that that feels maybe less incriminating than if you had a legitimate recording of the things that he would say to you. And he mm-hmm. had ways to make sure that that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do think those are on purpose. Like, I don't think they were mm-hmm. by chance. Yeah. I think it was calculated. Mm-hmm. Okay. It really strikes me because I'm listening to everything you're saying and it sits with me how many times you've referenced people crying as a result of this person's behavior actions and the fact that I think we in general in intense workplaces have somewhat normalized this idea of when you're stressed and you get overwhelmed, you get emotional. And I think that has blurred these lines for people to feel like I can come forward safely and with um, people behind me to talk about the fact that the, f- the end result of me crying after meetings or multiple people crying after meetings is not a healthy environment to be in. It's not an acceptable environment to be in. Nobody should finish a meeting with a superior of any sort crying like that. Absolutely. It's never happened to me in any other situation. <laughs> right. And why? And, and I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I just want to make it clear that I'm not just talking about women. There was a lot of men that would cry. Like, I think sometimes when people talk, think about crying, they think, oh, it's probably just a bunch of women. Absolutely. That was not the case. It was men and women. Everybody was affected by these issues. And I do want to ask you, so um, knowing that that dynamic really affected the people who were subject to it, um, there are multiple people that like I have talked to who dealt with that particular person, but it feels like walked away and she is still to this day, years later, mm. very careful about her superiors and keeping them happy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of thought in every aspect, what I post on social media, um, even if you have a private account, who I talk to, who I reference abuse to, I'm going to be very, very careful uh, that I don't do anything to make my superior upset. Mm. Is that something that you find that you continue to carry with you in your interactions um, at work or personally? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think this is like a little side story, but uh, I went on an internship from my research group during it to a company. And by this time, like I had stopped eating certain foods, like I couldn't eat dairy at all. I was having some like IBS issues, like I was quite physically ill from a lot of the things that happened, including some like personal issues that were happening as a result. And when I went on internship, all of those kind of were gone. Like I could eat dairy again, I could Mm -hmm. eat certain foods again. And some of my other issues were just completely like dissolving. Uh, Things got better quickly. But I remember 
the person I was working for is the owner of this company. He had like given me some free hockey tickets and I was like, oh, this is so exciting. I took my partner, we had a blast. It was so fun. Mm. And um, the next day I saw that he had emailed me and it was like a screenshot photo of like our seats that were on the TV. And so he sent me this email. It was like, oh, you guys were on TV and you couldn't quite see us in the photo. So I think I had gone to the bathroom or something and I just had this like terrifying, I felt sick to my stomach. I was like, oh my God, mm. he doesn't think I went to the hockey game and now he's like trying to manipulate me. Like he's really mad at me, da 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 da. Mm. And then my partner mm. who was like the most supportive, wonderful human I could have had during this experiment. He just looks at me and he's like, this is not like mm. this mm -hmm. is a nice guy he thought it was cool that you were on TV. He's not mm -hmm. manipulating you. He's not angry at you. He just thought it was cool that you were on TV. And mm -hmm. I definitely feel like still to this day, like I just have this like overwhelming fear of disappointing people. Like would always be say how much he was disappointed in me, like how he expected me to, he like really liked me at our interview and would always be like, you made me think you'd be hardworking. You made me think you'd be like this and you weren't. Mm. And mm. I just now I'm always like really scared. I even started a job at the same place I did my internship. They like hired me no interview because they had loved me so much for my internship. But I was like scared to start because I was like, I just don't want to disappoint somebody else. So I have mm. I feel like more I just have this fear. I'm like, I'm just going to let them down, which is like luckily my partner is like you've never let them down you love you he's always like a voice of reason being like that is not how they feel about you which i'm very thankful to have yeah. but i would say that's how it manifests for me like i'm just scared that they're gonna be disappointed yeah. but yeah sorry still to this day i get very like anxious around men that look like him like a little mm -hmm. bit of like ptsd mm -hmm. i think where if we're walking down the street and I see somebody who has the same build as him, I instantly like get goosebumps and start sweating and get like really anxious. And that's like, I've left two years ago and that still kind of like happens mm. to me. Yeah. I think for me, as you're talking about the, the big piece about the disappointment, um, I think something people don't always recognize with emotional abuse situations is it's the repetitive behaviors. And so it's not one instance of a conversation where he insinuated or flat out said he was disappointed in you. It was the manipulation of that piece, his position, what you were trying to achieve, and then the repetitive piece of the I'm disappointed in you, you can do better than this, that is what manifests into the abuse. Yeah. And that is what carries forward with us in the long term. It wasn't one conversation. It was multiple occurrences that sit with you and carry forward with you to this day. And I think that's important for people listening because people don't often um, have the tools to categorize or point out what emotional abuse looks like. And I think that repetition is important to pick up on. Um, and also in, in your symptoms and the way that you feel today, it's you, you see someone who has characteristics similar to that person and you're triggered by that. 
and a huge part of me as a person, because Terry and I have said this from the beginning when we started this podcast, was humans first, therapist second. And as a person, I I want to apologize for, for this experience that you've had. As a person, I want to hug you and make it better for you because this is not okay that you've experienced this at all under any circumstances. It means a lot to have like support. Like I do feel happy whenever I tell people the story, which I don't love to do. It's just very exhausting, but people are always really kind and really nice. And so I do always appreciate that. I think one thing that was really hard during it is like one thing that he would do a lot would be like last minute, be like, you're working this weekend. Mm -hmm. And that would happen a lot. And one consequence of that that I found was really hard is it just got so hard to bail on people last minute when he would make me work that I hated that. I hated canceling plans last minute all the time. So I stopped making the plans. And then I just, yeah, stopped making weekend plans with friends because I was like, this is going to be too hard if I have to cancel it. And then also like, one thing that was really challenging is I have a few really close friends and I found it just got a point where it was like, I didn't want to fake that I was happy when I chatted with them, but I also Mm -hmm. didn't want to go through and rehash all of the things and then convince them that I was like being abused. I always felt like I had to convince Mm -hmm. people and like, I just felt like no one would believe me and I had to like convince them and that was so emotionally exhausting. I didn't want to do that. And so then I didn't want to pretend I was happy. So then I just, feel like I isolated myself really strongly from like a lot of people Mm -hmm. like it just it's too much to explain to people everything he did and Mm -hmm. then it just got harder to talk to people and then to the point where it was like it was nice the people who were in the group with you because then you didn't need to like build up this case in your mind to prove to them you were being abused they just believed you Mm-hmm. And so it was nice to have that, but I felt that was really hard. I just felt very isolated from friends that weren't in the group. And like that became really hard because then you lose your network as well. Mm-hmm. If you're feeling alone all the time, whether it be you're actually alone because of all his tactics to um, reduce communication, mm-hmm. to pull you away from your personal life on weekends, things like that. Or if you're isolating yourself in response to, it's too much for me to talk about all the time, to rehash all the time, to explain all the time, and I don't want to be like the downer. The upshot is you have to, you feel like you have to do everything on your own. You have to deal with it on your own. And so you have less resources to like access the support that you did have with this like wearing down of your community. Yeah, absolutely. Even one thing that I thought was kind of funny is he would like, say a bunch of mean things that were scary in like a group meeting and then I would leave with like uh, like three of our my friends and stuff we'd walk away and I'd be like that was about me every single thing he was saying was directly about something I did and then my friend would be like no everything he was saying was about me and like he would Mm -hmm. use these statements and I think people would think it was about them but it was really like everybody felt like it was about them because he was like Mm -hmm. the way he would target it and I think the flip side of that is 
people were always really scared to come forward. For example, there was like a completely anonymous survey that went through the chemistry department and they allowed you to like write a professor that you felt like was being abusive. And people were too scared to write his name, even though it was anonymous. Like that's the level of how scared people were. It's an anonymous survey and people couldn't write his name because they felt like it would get tracked back to them. And I completely feel with them. Like it was scary to do that survey. But the thing is, it's like everybody thought their story was so specific. The things he said were so specific, but he was actually saying those to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But it, it was, I guess I'm not really sure what the point is, but like it's, he would use these general things to target everybody and everyone thought it was so specific to them. But then after talking to people in the group, some of the things that I would say, a friend would be like, he said that word for word to me, like, or he said that to me, like, and I think that the thing is, it's ironic because I've always been insecure about my intelligence and like what I can accomplish. But at the same time, I can objectively look at like the awards I've received, the like accolades I have, the job opportunities I've had. And I can objectively look that I'm not like an idiot, like he would say, mm-hmm. or like these really terrible things. Or like one of my friends, she was like the top of her class, like top engineer at her university and he was like you're an f student like you are a failure in this group you haven't done anything here in the like two years you haven't moved the needle an inch and so it's like and they we all believed him because he's the university pays him to be this person who's supposed to guide us and supposed to tell everything to us and also there's this culture where it's like oh if your professor says you're stupid you're stupid but then we look at it objectively and it's like all of these people around me are the top tier in our research programs. And we all feel like we're incompetent fools that don't deserve to be here and don't deserve anything. And I think he did a really good job of instilling that in us and like making us feel like we are lucky that he accepted us into the group because we wouldn't be able to go anywhere else because he's the only one who has the gratitude to deal with our incompetence. Mm, wow. You know, or like he would even sometimes blame us for people leaving. Like people would quit. A lot of people quit. A lot of people left. And he would then blame us. He's like, these people left because they couldn't deal with how bad of a writer you all were. Mm-hmm. And I know those people, I'm like, that's not why they left. But he would push <laughs> that on to us. And he'd be like, they couldn't deal with your insubordination or your poor writing skills or how you don't listen. And, um this is something i'm even nervous to say because i'm scared if he ever found saw this podcast he would know it was me because this is a very personal fact but i have a learning disability dyslexia it affects reading and writing and so that's always been a big challenge for me and then i would try to like let him know that i had that he knew i had a learning disability he knew it affect reading and writing and then he would give me this really bad reading or or like writing feedback and he'd be like you never listened to me and I'm like I have a learning disability and I'm trying my absolute best I'm doing everything I can do and he'd be like you don't listen to me this means you don't care this means like I can't trust you with any work like you don't you can't do any of this and it's just kind of like I sometimes feel with the learning disability it's like 
he was always really bad with it. Like if somebody had a broken leg, you'd, they'd never ask you to sprint a marathon, but yeah. he was, I felt always really disrespectful about the learning disability and mm. I felt very dismissive. He would be sometimes like, Oh yeah. Like I maybe have a little bit of this dyslexia and I'm like, probably not. Do you want to talk a little bit about how um, the extreme stress and the abuse came out physically? I know that we've touched on it a little bit, but. I always lied to people about this. I would always tell people when I would get stressed, I would vomit, but Mm -hmm. I didn't. I always had diarrhea, but I Mm -hmm. told people that I vomited because I feel like diarrhea is so gross. So I'd always pretend I was puking, but I was actually the other way. I don't mm-hmm. like know how to say that, but. Okay. Oh. I think one of the reasons we are doing this is to kind of break down some of those walls and the things that people are not saying and the to normalize more but if it's something you're not comfortable with that's different and so if you don't want to say those things that's okay I feel embarrassed I think that's what it is I just feel embarrassed by it and my my person as being as like vulnerable as I would hope for you to be would be I think that would really help people to even hear that side of it to even hear you say like I'm embarrassed and I'm hesitant to share this those pieces can help someone else who's experiencing some something like you to say oh there's somebody else who has this who's felt this way but that's again your comfort level um, if you're okay, can I do a little question lead in on that? Yeah. Is that okay? Um, one of the reasons I would love to talk about some of the physical side effects of how stress manifests and anxiety manifests is because I think in general, there's a big disconnect when we talk about mental health and our bodies and we tend to separate the physical symptoms from our cognitive levels of what we're thinking about and what we're processing and people often push back on our physical reactions being tied to emotional um, stresses or anxieties. And so one of the things I would really love to talk more about is how that stress for you manifested and what your symptoms looked like to whatever degree you're comfortable with. Because I do think that helps anyone listening understand a different dynamic of this is a lot more than just emotional there are a lot of physical layers to this. Yeah, absolutely. I always find these ones were the most hard for me to talk and share about because they made me feel so uncomfortable and I felt extremely embarrassed with some of them. Um, They ranged in magnitude and intensity, but I started to be unable to eat dairy. I started to be unable to eat like certain foods that would really upset my stomach. I kind of developed this like IBS, which was really challenging to deal with, Um, would make me feel very (laughs) bad most of the time. I would get frequent diarrhea, like at least five times a day every day, which is not healthy. And I had never had that before I joined the group. And still to this day, if I get 
at all nervous or stressed, I now get diarrhea, which is a brand new thing that didn't happen to me when I was younger or in university or anything like that. So that one was really hard. And then the most challenging to talk about for me symptom, which always made me very uncomfortable, was that I was unable to have sex for a very long time. It became very painful to the point where it was just every time I would try, my partner was amazing. I couldn't have asked for a more loving and more supporting person, but we'd both kind of just try and then end up in tears because I was upset and that would make him upset. It was hard. It was hard to feel like he could influence every corner of my life. It didn't stop when I left the lab. It was really hard. And then all of these physical symptoms, it was just, it felt crazy how it affected my body so much to every extent. And I got to a point for a while where I would walk to school with my partner. He was always amazing. And he'd walk me right to the door of my lab because I'd be too nervous. And a lot of days there was a, this wasn't all the time, but there was a period where at least for three months, I think I cried every day, just scared to walk into the building. And I had never been like that before. And like at my undergrad institute, I worked with one of the most tough professors. Him and I got along so well. I've worked for like, even at my current company, one of my bosses, a lot of people have a really difficult time working with her. She's very blunt, yet I, her and I get along. Like I get along mm. with a lot of tough, not easy to get along with mm. people. Can I, can I just jump in here and say like, to me right now, it sounds like you're building a case for you being competent intelligent, hardworking, a valuable member of a team. And there is no question in my mind that you are all of those things. And yeah. the, the most upsetting piece listening to you is the fact that he got into your head so much that it would be a question for you of like, it's not me feeling like you have to prove that it's not you and that you have flourished in other areas because it sounds so clear to me that it was never you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it still is tough even though it's been so long. Mm -hmm. On a happy note though, mm -hmm. because my partner is a part of that world still, academia, I went to, to an event to support him and was there. And of course he came up and talked to me and I was worried he might be there. And when I was driving up to go support my partner, I got a stomach ache, I felt really sick mm -hmm. and I kind of just over and over verbalized to myself that he can't hurt me mm -hmm. and that I now mm -hmm. have the power to walk away. Mm -hmm. Good for you. And then I ended up having a conversation with him and it felt so cathartic. I feel like it's been two years, but I still give him the power that he had then 
and I was always so scared. I would see him and it would be like the same. And I think it felt very cathartic because when I had that interaction, I was like, you can't hurt me and I'm not scared of you anymore. And even though it's still hard and I feel like the insecurities and those things are still with me, it was so nice to look at him and be like, you can't hurt me and you don't matter anymore. Mm -hmm. And it felt very freeing. And I left being like, I just felt like I gave him so much energy. Like I had this fear that I was giving him and this interaction kind of allowed me to get rid of it. And I don't have to put bandwidth into being scared of him anymore or being nervous. And so this happened very recently, but I'm really hoping the like PTSD thing with men that look like him will be muted now because I feel like it was nice to see that I don't have to be scared anymore. Mm -hmm. I think the culture is kind of bad, but you're not a failure if you leave an abusive situation. You're not a failure because you quit grad school. If it, I feel like there was this culture that it was bad if you left, but it's not. Just leave, go do a different group. My partner is doing his PhD and loves his supervisor. It doesn't have to be like this. You can have grad school and have it be a better experience. And I, he does, doesn't have that control over you. That's a power dynamic that doesn't really exist. It feels real as like a ton of weight over your shoulders, but it's not actually there. Mm -hmm. And so I find it seems silly, the things that I did thinking he controlled everything. Cause I'm like, now I shouldn't have let him get away with the things that he got away with. Mm -hmm. And to be kind to yourself. <laughs> always that's a good one but be really kind to yourself yeah and how are you healing moving forward from that I know that you mentioned your own counselor so is that something that you did throughout um grad school is that something that you started more recently I actually piggybacked my counselor off of another member of the group Okay, that makes sense. Nice. <laughs> so, because so many people in the group see counselors and therapists, <laughs> I was talking to a friend of mine and he said he had a counselor he really liked. And I was like, is it weird if we have the same counselor? And he's like, no, you should see her. It's amazing. And then it was also one thing that I really liked was she already knew the story. I didn't have mm. to hash it out to her. She already knew everything from this other friend of mine. Um, I did see a counselor briefly during the research group. I was having a particularly hard time. And one of my supportive friends was like, I will take you to this counseling service on campus. Mm -hmm. and. She only knew about it because she had to go there previously for similar things with the group. And so she literally like took me there. I was like kind of just in a fog. I was so upset and she just kind of took me to this place. And then I got free counseling from the school. I didn't find it very effective. I kind of always say like my partner and my mother were crazy supportive, really good listeners. 
I never felt like I needed somebody to like talk to. I, I kind of wanted like strategies with my counseling. So the free counselor I got there, she was so lovely, wonderful person, but she was more of like a good listener, like somebody to hear mm-hmm. what you're telling, but not like give me tons of feedback mm-hmm. back. So then that didn't really work out so much for me, but the second counselor I see now who was recommended to me by a coworker is amazing. She's mm-hmm. very good at explaining to me like biologically, like for example, the sex stuff was very hard. And she said, biologically, like you're feeling like you're being hunted and your body mm-hmm. is like not allowing mm-hmm. you to relax enough to have that experience because your body feels like it's being hunted biologically sex is to have children your body can't Mm -hmm. do that so your body's not allowing you this Mm -hmm. and that made me feel really a lot better just kind of like hearing a rational reason for why these things were happening and she's really good at giving me strategies so I'm really happy that I had that outlet Mm -hmm. I love that I think that says a lot about the importance of finding the right fit in counseling, not just a therapist. Mm -hmm. It has to click and it has to give you what you need in those moments. And so it's okay to switch and it's okay to look for more outside of that. And normalizing that too for people, I think is important. It's not a one-stop shop. Yeah. I would just say this whole experience was really eye-opening like to what it felt like to have not ideal mental health. Like that was definitely, Mm -hmm. I feel so thankful that I had this world of supportive people in the group and supportive family. I really, my heart goes out to people who feel isolated and alone even more so than I did. I couldn't imagine what that would feel like. And I think the counseling was such a game changer for me. it like I really feel like pretty much everybody could go to counseling Mm -hmm. like I think just anyone could benefit like you don't have to have a really traumatic experience to need it it I found like I went to it to talk to her but then all this body image stuff came out from my childhood and like stuff to do with my parents divorce like it's crazy how much like breadth of stuff we talk about and like how much those childhood experiences like affect your adult experiences so I'm just really, really thankful I started talking to a really great counselor. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this chat and for taking time out of your day to share your story. I think it's a really important one for people to hear. And like, yeah, thank you for your vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for being open. Absolutely. I'm so happy to do it. First (laughs) podcast, so exciting.